Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers. That's why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. Each month, we look at one play over 30 minutes with insights straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon. I'm Erin Dewar, and we are not in print. Andrew Bovell is one of Australia's most acclaimed writers. He navigates theatre, film and television, but we're here to talk about his Augie Award-winning play, Speaking in Tongues, which has been seen on stages throughout Australia, Europe and the US. Sixteen years after its premiere at Griffin Theatre in Sydney, it's now regarded as an Australian classic. Two couples set out to betray their partners. A lover returns from the past and a husband doesn't answer the phone. A woman disappears and a neighbour is the prime suspect. Contracts are broken between intimates and powerful bonds are formed between strangers. In this masterfully interconnected polyphony, an evocative mystery unravels alongside a devastating tale of disconnection between individuals, partners and communities. Andrew, thank you for joining us today to talk about Speaking in Tongues, which actually developed out of two of your previous plays, both of which were quite short, like Whiskey on the Breath of a Drunky Love in 1992 and Distant Lights from Dark Places in 1994. And then in 1996, Griffin commissioned a third play, a companion piece, but instead of creating a third separate story, you found a way to link the two previous plays and created a single work that was influenced heavily by American crime novels, the intense fear of learning to salsa, and the multidimensional storytelling of Robert Altman's classics Nashville and Shortcuts. What attracts you to such narrative complexity? You know, I think what in the first instance I was getting excited about as a writer at that time was structural complexity rather than narrative complexity. The kind of narrative complexity came out of me wanting to find alternative ways of telling a story. I think I'd I'd started to become a little bit bored of within the first five minutes of a of a work knowing exactly the world I was in and the kind of story telling I was going to receive. So with like whiskey on a, on the breath of a drunk you love, that was originally written in Melbourne, and it really is the first two scenes of what speaking in tongues is now, and in that. That I was really exploring the idea of superimposition and the idea of drawing on musical structures to shape a work. So how could I orchestrate a play which was as carefully structured as a composition in music? And when I started to find a way that two situations could be superimposed upon each other and the meaning could subtly change and yet kind of remain the same. That was very exciting to me. But it was a short experiment for a small company in Melbourne called the $5 Theatre Company. And in Melbourne, it was done as a very serious piece, um, which was a little bit of a surprise to me. But that was the tone of the company and, and it was formally beautiful. And then Griffin did it two years later, maybe, and it was a riotous comedy. And it was such a revelation to me just to think, how can one piece of writing deliver two such different experiences? Moving on to Distant Lights from Dark Places. um, From memory, I was reading a lot of James Elroy 
um, so that kind of American noir, crime noir stuff. So I think tonally that informed the work. But what was particular to Distant Lights from Dark Places was the idea of fragmentation of narrative. So a story didn't have to be told chronologically or in a whole way. It could be cut up and rearranged um, and intercut with other experiences, other voices, and the sum of the parts becomes greater than the whole. So those two pieces, the idea of superimposition and the idea of fragmentation, were two approaches to narrative and structure that I had been playing with in the early 90s. And then came this offer to write the third piece. So once that door opened, it was about finding a way of connecting them. And I think that's when the influence of people like Robert Altman um, came into play. What I was really interested in, in asking you was whether or not you can kind of give a, a few key construction elements that allowed this complex narrative and structure to be translatable to actors and directors reading the script and then also digestible for an audience to watch because you, you write for the stage and you're obviously writing for something to be performed but you're also writing for people to read your words and then perform it. The first step on that journey was to take the crime at the heart of Distant Lights from Dark Places and to make Leon from Like Whiskey on the Breath of a Drunk You Love, the cop who was investigating that crime. So really quite a simple linking device. The two plays were also thematically connected. Distant Lights from Dark Places was a darker and more soulful treatment of the notion of trust and betrayal. Like Whiskey on the Breath of a Drunk You Love was a more playful examination of that. So tonally I had to find a way to bring these two works together. In the first play, Whiskey, one couple goes through with their infidelity, another couple doesn't. It breaks one couple apart. It allows another couple to recommit, to re-understand their relationship, to go deeper in their relationship. So there's very kind of clear symmetries I'm working with here. And out of that initial scene where there is a double infidelity going on, I then really start to push the boundaries of credibility, where everybody meets everybody at some point. So the two men happen to meet in a bar. Unknowingly, one man has slept with the other's wife. It's a great dramatic setup anyway. You know, it's sort of really satisfying. And then the two women meet in the bar, completely implausible probably in the real world but we're not in the real world there is an artifice of structure being set up in order to allow us to examine a theme if you like and the two partners that went through with the infidelity then have an encounter that is off stage and in coming back to their partner they relay relay this thing that has happened to them and of course, the trick of it was that the two encounters that Leon and Jane respectively had belonged to the world of the second part of the play. So two stories are told in the first part that we then go on to explore in the second part. And so it's then a kind of delightful surprise to be, oh no, we're actually going to go deeper into their worlds and you know, understand those experiences more. So you get the story of the weeping man. Um, and you get the story of the woman who has lost her shoe played out. 
what I want to ask, I mean, that relationship between writer, actor, director, the audience is very collaborative, but yet at the same time it's very distinct from one another. They each play their own role mm. and have their own part within that. Mm. And the writer's role obviously is particularly unique position to be in. So those stage directions at the beginning of your, uh, particularly of this piece mm. of Speaking in Tongues, the creatives are given a very clear expectation of what's about to happen before they even read it. Mm. Well, what did you hope they would get out of reading it for the first time, having known all of that up front? It's about framing this as a story. This isn't real life. This is a story. And so is there a way to kind of contextualise the work or, the, or, or to set it up for the reader or, or the people who are going to do it with that idea? And I, originally, I think I originally wrote, wrote those introductions simply to the exercise of, of trying to paraphrase story. And then I quite liked the poetics of it. So when you come to then have to execute the play, you've already got a kind of a sense of mood that you're trying to reach. I think we could probably move on to the next question, which is about character, but I suppose it, it gets into the idea of the multidimensional narrative. Yeah. Um, so the characters are largely developed through reflexivity as their lives intersect. And we're interested to know more about your intentions structurally and thematically, but also dialogically, because there's a very strong focus on dialogue in this piece with crossovers, with double meanings, with things doubling back on themselves. Mm. In that first section, there's a moment of symmetry when there's a lot of crossover happening before it. Um, Sonia and Jane ask Leon and Pete about their wives, and both men admit that they're attracted to opposing qualities in their spouses, but they're also driven mad by them. And then soon after, the women both say this about their husbands. He's no one special. Ordinary to look at, but looks never mattered much to me. And both men take offence as if this comment is a reflection on them. And the wives then go on to display the very characteristics that their husbands are trying to escape from. Can you expand on the reasons that Leon and Jane then go through with it but Sonia and Pete don't. Because that's life. You know, that's, there are lessons to be learned. And, you know, I think Jane makes the most courageous choice in the play because she knows that it's not right with Pete. And it would be, the easier choice would be just to muddle along, not hurt him, remain within the comfort of this marriage. But it takes a lot to kind of go, to take the risk of being alone. This is also a period in my life where, you know, early 30s, I'm married, I have two small children. The consequences of the choices you made are now starting to bear out. In my world, a lot of couples are starting to break up. But it's also at a point at which you say, I, I need to go deeper with the person I am, in or with the person I'm with, in order to sustain a long-term kind of life with them. You're asking those kind of questions, I think, in your 30s. In your 20s, you're just having a damn good time. Suddenly in your 30s, you have to be a bit more grown up. So I think I, mean, I was examining all of that kind of stuff in relation to my own life as well. Because they all seem to be at crossroads, and, and I guess that's why I found it so interesting that they were all essentially doing something that was 
as an audience are uh, morally questionable in, in some ways, but there was no sense of judgment. Yeah. Um, you showed the full spectrum of, of differences with yeah. the way that there didn't seem to me to be too much connection between a lot of the, um, the crossover in dialogue. No, look, that piece was very much structured orally. And w- once we st- you start to lock onto the, a pattern of it, I would try to change it. So there's four voices on stage. Now there's so many beautiful possibilities of orchestrating four voices. And yes, when the two men speak together and the two women speak together, it means diff- something different to when the two betrayers speak together and the two betrayed speak together. So, you know, there's a certain degree of playfulness going on and experimentation and possibility. When first written, this was very much a tongue-in-cheek look at infidelity and a, something playful. But in doing the whole play, I, needed to, I knew I needed to go deeper. That's why that device could not be sustained. You could do a whole play like that, but I think you would keep your audience at a distance. In section two of part one, just as the infidelities are about to be revealed, all of the characters say, as one, it's so hot. (laughs) And these infidelities, one realized and the other half attempted, seem to have created two kinds of heat. There's a heat of passion and risk and then a heat of guilt and fear that comes straight after it, really. And so I'm interested to know why you think people cheat and why people keep cheating. But can I also link it back to something you were saying before about people going into their 30s and having to actually make that decision as opposed to it being something that just naturally they go, actually, I really just want to do that. For a lot of people, that's actually the 40s too. It's sort of, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why people cheat. I think marriage is a pretty barbaric human invention. I met my wife when I was 20 and we're still together. And so- That's amazing. Yeah, it's kind of, we both look at each other and go, what the hell? (laughs) I've known you longer than I've not known you. And now at this point in my life, I go, God, that is so wonderful. So whatever need was in me, my need was for constancy. I wanted to talk now about the idea of anonymity, which runs through the play, perceived and actual. And again, in part one, in, in section three of that part, Leon and Pete are in a bar together. Right. And Leon says, it's kind of easier to tell these things to a stranger. Mm. There's nothing at stake. You tell me what you want to tell me and I tell you what I want to tell you. We both go away a little wiser and there's no loss, no shame. But Leon very quickly after that has reason to suspect that they aren't really strangers at all. Mm. And that their lives have intersected because of coincidences and convergences that are just beyond their control, mm. which happens to everyone in this mm. play. And then right after that, at another bar, the women meet. And speaking with as much candor as the men do, they do reveal their identities. And it turns out that they both already knew who the other woman was. I just am really interested about the judgments and advice that both men and both women give in those scenes and what we can take from that. Are they just talking about themselves? Are they trying to work out all of their own issues with that other person? Uh, Are they actually giving them real advice and trying to help them? Is there some kind of shared pain or yearning going on there? Well, there's all of that. This is a play about a set of people who are all trying to make sense of their own lives. So in whatever situation they find themselves in, they are trying to talk, talk themselves through it talk themselves through to some sort of understanding of, of what has happened, what are its consequences, and why it happened. 
So, so I set up a number of situations in which that, that enables these people to reflect upon their own experience. But what's lovely about those two scenes is that the, the two men find a point of connection where they really do exchange something intimate. And yes, Leon doesn't fess up who he is. Pete remains in ignorance. But the two women discover an intimacy as well. I think you could well read that I am suggesting that women are able to be more honest when it comes to talking about their emotional lives. If we move on to part two, the thing that struck me about this section is that it provokes ideas about memory and how these characters manage this truth of their own that we've been talking about. But in part two, Neil and Sarah's fleeting relationship is contrasted concurrently. Neil is writing a letter to her from the past and he's trying to understand why she left while she's recounting her polarised ideas about their relationship to her therapist, Valerie. They cross this disconnect of time and space by speaking the same words at the same time and and why is the other word. Yeah. Mm. Similarly, Valerie and Nick also take us across this kind of time-space divide that you've created in their recounts of the moment when she gets into his car. However, their words don't overlap. Rather, they start finishing each other's sentences and they almost blur completely into this one voice. In order to scrutinise the character's recall and their perspective, lovers quickly become strangers while strangers are effortlessly entwined. Can you tell us more about how you woven these threads together? Mm. I mean, how, how You know, this, this play was written in a rush. This play right. was... was <laughs> Um, written in a burst of intense creativity where if there's a muse, mine was working. Mm. I felt very, I heard this play. And the shape here is these are four one-way conversations where a character is talking to somebody unseen. So the one part of the conversation is a monologue. And again, in, in this part of the play, each conversation is with a stranger. And when I say a stranger, I mean Valerie's conversation is to her husband and yet she's realising that she doesn't know her husband, that they, in fact, emotionally estranged. So that's the kind of pattern and shape of it. And then I come back to the musicality of it. How can I bring those bits together which make kind of a music? I love that very first, the statement that you make in the stage directions for part, the start of part two about all these being unanswered cries for help. Yeah. And I just love that that's what you give them as the writer. You give mm. them a connection that they're... Ultimately, they don't have. There is a certain pleasure in the manipulation of narrative that enables two, un people, two unexpected people to be brought together. An unemployed working class man picks up an educated, relatively neurotic, wealthy therapist. Um, these people occupy really different worlds. Now they're in a car together on a dark night driving down a dirt road mm. what happens does she trust him or not was she right to jump out of that car she perceived Nick the man who picked her up as a threat where in fact his intentions were good and yet we understand also why she made that choice mm. a woman who is emotionally fragile because she has begun to suspect that her husband may be seeing somebody else and therefore is in a very vulnerable place. Her car breaks down. 
she makes the wrong choice by getting into a stranger's car, really. And, yeah, we kind of understand that when he turns off the road, that is a clear indication that there is a threat. So it's not that she made a, a choice that's not understandable. It was. It just had kind of, you know, because of the moral complexity of the tapestry of story, it turns out to be the wrong choice. For her on this night, on yeah. this day with yeah. this man. You know, Nick just wanted to get home to his own wife because he thought that she was going to be angry with him because he was late home from the pub. and So it's those very human dilemmas. I feel like they're all creating their own story in the way that they project all these things as well and it's ultimately unfair for the other person receiving that, but it's, yeah, you know, it's a truth for them. You can't really escape that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting, the dilemma between Neil, the man who's writing the letters to a woman, uh, to an ex-lover, and Sarah, the ex-lover, as she explores her past with a therapist. And through Neil's letters, he's constantly saying, I just need to know. I just need closure. I just need to understand why you never came back. And we go, yeah, that's absolutely fair enough. You need This man needs to be freed and he's got caught here because you never had the courage to actually say, I need to leave you. And then you start to hear from Sarah the guy was obsessive. Uh, I didn't know how to leave him. And do you think if I had told him that I needed to go, he would have believed me? He just would have followed me. I had to go away to Europe. I had to make that kind of break in order to do it. And you go, well, yeah, I understand why you had to do that now. Mm. Like in the first part, first part of the play, you're exploring two sides of the same issue that actually together make up the whole story. There's no right and wrong here. There are only shades of grey. Part one and part three, they both explore the way that infidelity is discussed, but in, in very different environments. Yeah. So in part one, you have a very informal setting. And then in part three, you're in the confines of a therapist's office, but you're also in someone's home whilst they're being interrogated about, mm. a, at this stage, a missing person. And the emotional... Dynamics, I suppose, in these two parts, they seem to mirror each other because each character has an agenda and they each have to confront in those moments where they realise they don't have as much power as they thought they did, these gaps between truth and perception where they were coming at it from one angle but someone throws something at them they just yeah. can't get their head around. Also, what's at play here is the public and personal. So Leon, we meet Leon, who we've already known deeply, intimately in his mess of a personal life and suddenly we see him being the cop and yet once again the scene is about the nature of nature of loyalty commitment trust betrayal and all these things reflect deeply back upon what we've seen leon grappling with john really touches leon he really hits some raw nerves by the end of it leon kind of understands john's predicament and everyone coming to these conversations, moments, scenes, whatever you want to call them, with certain perceptions that they project onto the other people, thinking that they have some kind of agency and authority in that moment mm. for mm. truth. Mm. Um, and then having that undercut or pulled out from underneath them. Or Absolutely. The just, idea that the therapist, who in reality is an incredibly fragile and confused and threatened woman, with reason because she suspects that her husband is withholding 
and he is withholding. Not just the fact that he happens to be sleeping with a woman who happens to be a client, but he's withholding emotionally, and that's, that's more damaging. But she is a therapist. She is the one that is meant to have the insight and the authority to read human behavior, and yet she's too fragile to, to read it correctly. She reads it through her own... Well, as you say, because she's projecting a whole lot of stuff that she's her own baggage onto this woman. So after interval, the audience returns to find the same actors playing different characters. Yes. Forcing them to let go of what they thought they knew and adopt a new perspective all over again. Yeah. This distance between truth and perception closes in and is personified, in fact, with each of these four actors walking in two characters' shoes and one of the men walks in three. The Mm. audience, however, must walk in all of them. Leon goes so far as to point to this very idea quite literally when he goes and he takes Neil's shoes off the beach. Mm. In terms of stepping in and out of character, did you intend for particular parts to be doubled up as a as a device for creating meaning? F- firstly, what I was fascinated by was that to to was the idea of pulling the carpet out from under an audience at interval. Mm. So the idea that we would drop four characters that we've become deeply involved in at interval, you know, was kind of satisfying. But I want to give actors some meat on their bone. I want to give them something to do. I want to write parts that actors have to work hard on. So playing the cop, but then also having to play a very working class man down on his luck is a great range for an actor. Um... Again, with the women, there was a certain sort of interesting combination in the energy. Sonia was quite a kind of sardonic, sharp, quick-witted woman. So the natural kind of connection seemed to be Sarah, who had similar qualities. And then Jane and Valerie become the natural combination otherwise. So that was in my head. And poor, the guy who had to play Pete, John, Neil... Mm. Again, there's a kind of softer quality to certainly Pete and Neil, so that makes sense. And he ended up having to play John because, you know, I needed John. I'm really glad, also interested to hear you say that it was a choice that you made because I have spoken to a lot of people about funding in Australian theatre and there really not being much of it in the arts generally. There have been people that have argued that, in fact, it forces you to make choices that can actually be quite creatively profound sometimes. I, yeah. Look, I think that's a really, really good point to make about our theatre. I think, well, I've certainly learned and I think others have learned to be incredibly creative with the limitations. Now, very clearly, th- this work was premiered at Griffin and it was only ever going to have a small cast. It can only ever afford a small cast. And yet sometimes your desire is to work on a bigger canvas. So how are you going to make that work? You have to become very creative. But it's not just about random doubling. You know, there is meaning in those choices. So I've, I've, I've tried to turn a limitation into a virtue of the work. In talking about this, we were saying that arguably through the process of readjusting to the actors' new identities, the audience is then again challenged as they were at the start because it's a very challenging opening. But they're challenged again in their own ability to their own ability to be able to follow all the clues of the story. Do you think there's an element of risk 
at this point for the pl- for the audience in being able mm. to suspend that belief and losing them entirely? You know, one of the great delights in theatre is, you know, an actor puts on a different hat and there's somebody else. And you go, oh, okay, I'm with somebody else now. I mean, we, we've actually got the language to deal with that quite well. So, yeah, some audiences will go, well, what the hell happened to the other four? You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, that isn't the play about them. But others hopefully will go, ah, I see what he's doing. It goes back to that thing of wanting to give an audience a way to participate. And yes. on our basic level, uh, who's who and who did what to who mm. is a great way to hook an audience into a story. There's nothing like a good whodunit. But hopefully there's a way of kind of also doing a whodunit with a sense of sophistication and structural ingenuity that kind of takes it beyond just that. Yeah. Um, because who done it in speaking in tongues is a really interesting question because in the end they all did it. Um, they all did something. Yeah. They all did something. <laughs> <laughs> We've kind of talked about this already, and you you started to talk about it at the beginning. But why is it that this particular landscape of love and betrayal, intimacy, relationships, trust, grief at times, mm. it still intrigues? creatives it, it intrigues actors and directors it intrigues our audiences and it has transcended different modes as well you know obviously mm, with lantana mm. there are pretty juicy subjects trust betrayal grief and they occur in a lot of work and they have done since the greeks so the themes are constant uh, but maybe it's the treatment of those themes in speaking in tongues the st- the mode of storytelling that remains it a challenging work to do for actors and directors and a perhaps more unusual experience for audiences than just the classic play about an affair. Thank you so much for being with us today and taking the time to talk about your play, Andrew. We've really enjoyed it. Thanks. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Not In Print. You can find out more about Currency Press and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com. If you have any questions or comments about this episode or would like to make a suggestion for future episodes, please let us know via Facebook or Twitter. This recording was generously produced by Rachel Corbett in Sydney, Australia on the 14th of January 2013 in association with Currency Press.